Well, uh, if you're new here with us, we are picking up in a series of messages that we've been uh, going through the book of Genesis in, and uh, today we are picking up uh, with the story of the, the first descendants of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, their two sons. And, and uh, you know, what we, a little known fact about me, I guess, just get, to get in here, is that uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I was a huge fan of fake wrestling. I thought that would be a lot more funny in my head. I don't know why you guys, some of you, maybe you were too in the first service. There's a ton of guys that were anyway. But so basically this whole thing of fake wrestling kind of got out of hand with my friends and I, and uh, we decided to have a party where we would in fact dress up as different, different wrestling characters, uh, walk out to their theme music, and then we would also wrestle on the trampoline together with this in mind. And so you can imagine, it seemed really great in, in our minds, and it was a lot of fun in that time. Anyway, I don't have any reason for telling you that story other than the fact that I was Cain, in, in the, the, the wrestler Cain. So anyway, we're going to move on now. Y'all don't think that's funny. So um, <clears throat> as we pick out Cain and Abel here, uh, what we're going to see is the curse of sin immediately has effect in the world in a, in a really profound way. So that the, the, the sin that Adam and Eve commit immediately goes in a really powerful way to their first descendants. And, and the thing that struck me as I studied this passage this week in Genesis 4 was the fact that the Lord addressed Cain's heart uh, before he ever murdered his brother. And the thing that he, that he looked at was not, he wasn't just focused on what was going to happen, he was focused on his heart initially. And, and his heart was divided, is what we see. His worship was divided. And I think one of the things that we see in Scripture and in our world today is that a divided heart um, may even be the preferred tactic of the enemy to use. People that have a divided heart where they're kind of into Jesus, kind of not, uh, other than, you know, where, where other, other situations you see kind of stone-cold unbelievers, uh, a lot of times God will use a divided heart in a, in a really pervasive and powerful way among his people. Genesis 4, you know, you think about, okay, why did Cain kill his brother? I think we're tempted to think that it was an anger problem. Like if he could just go to anger management classes and get his act together, maybe he wouldn't have murdered his brother. But Genesis 4 is not about an anger problem. It's about a worship problem. A matter of that which Cain loves most. Because anger, we talked about this about three years ago, but when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, but anger is first and foremost about love. You don't think about love whenever you... When you're angry or someone is angry at you, but anger is first and foremost about love. It's about protecting whatever we love from whatever is threatening what we love. That's when we get angry. And so for Cain, what we see is that, is that, is that what he loved, which was himself, was threatened with what God said to him about his offering. And this is why really our only antidote is, is found in our big idea today, and it's this, that wholehearted worship is our only defense against sin's deception. So as opposed to divided worship, wholehearted worship is our only defense. So let me tell you where I'm going before we go there this morning. Our, our first kind of thing we're going to be looking at is this, is that pleasing worship is wholehearted worship. So when we look at Cain and Abel, God regards Abel's offering. He doesn't regard Cain's. So pleasing worship comes from a wholehearted kind of state of being. Second thing is this, is that sin not only divides our hearts, but it also divides our relationships. 
Most times we, t- we're, we tend to think of just what happened, the act of sin, but we don't think about how the heart of sin leads to sinning against other people. Thirdly, only Jesus can be his brother's keeper. All right, let's dig in together. Uh, pleasing worship is wholehearted worship. We're going to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 4, and as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to remind you of part of Genesis 3 that's really crucial for us to see today. When, when, the in, when, when God was addressing the enemy, and he was talking about the, really the consequences of his sin, we, we, we spent quite a bit of time looking at Genesis 3.15 last week, which says this, that I'll put enmity, or I'll make enemies between you, who he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, the devil's offspring, and her offspring, Eve's offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's that promise that eventually someone would come from Eve's lineage that would crush the head of the serpent. Um, and so we have that promise there that's important to remember. And what you, what you see here is that, is that throughout human history, there's going to be kind of two seeds or two offsprings that are mentioned. The, the first one, there's going to be the seed of the woman. This, this resembles the promises of God, his agenda for holiness, for grace-filled, humble living, and refuting the lies and schemes of the enemy. Like, like that's what we would call Christian today. Or in the Old Testament, that would be like regenerate Israel, right? That's what you would see, the, the church, God's people. But there's also going to be this, this whole other offspring of people, he's saying. People that resemble the serpent, who are of their father, the devil, who do, does not stand in the truth, that, that lives in deception and offer half-hearted worship because of their divided hearts. And we can stand on that because of what John chapter 8, verse 44 says. It says this, uh, Jesus, well, I think he was talking to some Pharisees here. And he, says, he says to them, so these are people that have been in church, kind of doing the thing, right? Look religious. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what we're going to see throughout the Bible is even even all the way to Judgment Day, the sheep and the goats, right? Jesus is going to separate them is that there's going to be people that you're not going to be able to tell the difference in. There's going to be true believers and there's going to be unbelievers. They're going to do a lot of the same things and some things are going to be different. And we see this play out even in the very first offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. So let's look at Genesis 4 verses 1 through 6 together. Verse 1 says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She said, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And Abel also brought of his firstborn of his flock and of, uh, I'm sorry, and Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And here's the key. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? So let's unpack this a little bit. Verse one, Eve is beside herself when she finds out that she is going to have a son. 
And she names him, she names him Cain. And here's what she's thinking. She's thinking, here is the promised one. God made this promise in Genesis chapter 3 that, that I would have a child that would ultimately crush the serpent's head, the devil himself, and that, and that one of my children would be victorious over this cosmic struggle of sin that all of my offspring will have. So she's thinking that, hey, maybe the first one's the one. It's a little naive there, right? I mean, we can see how history plays out. It's been a long time, right? But what, what we see is that she's excited about that and that God is, God is still blessing her because before sin ever entered the world, God gave a mandate to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply, didn't he? Have children, right? And he'll reiterate that promise throughout history that as, as we see him as God, we are his people and, and he gives offspring, he multiplies his church. Uh, we see that even through Abraham. So, so then little brother Abel is born and we don't have much biographical details other than the fact that, that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. It's interesting to look at the history of shepherds in the Bible too, right? There's lots of shepherds in the Bible and they're very key people in the scriptures. Abel's one of those. So over time what happens is that Cain brings an offering to God. We don't know how old he is or how long it's been. He offers him from his work and, and, and so does Abel. Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's is not. Some people think that you know maybe it was because Abel's sacrifice involved blood, which would point to the sacrificial system and the shed blood of Jesus that stands in our place. Some people think that that's why it wasn't accepted. It could be the case, but I think a better translation for answering the question, why was, why was Cain's offering rejected, follows just right after this uh, in verse uh, four. And it says, Abel also brought, here's the key word, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So what's it mean to offer the firstborns of your life, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the, that priority in worship, the first fruits of your life. It's to offer your very best, the very best of your day, the very best of your week, the very best of your money and your heart to God. This is the key for worship that we see in the scriptures, not whatever's left. Cain makes the tragic mistake of not seeing how his leftover worship reveals his leftover heart, amen? He sees he doesn't see this happening. He thinks that he can do all of the things that Abel is doing and be the, the beloved son of God and kind of have this dualistic life. The, so, and I want you to remember here, you know, what Abel does. Abel looks at the provision in his flock, or maybe it's a calf. We don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it's a baby sheep or a calf, but he thinks to himself, this is the best one. And he has this temptation like you and I do whenever we present an offering to God, whether it's of our lives or of our money, and we think, ugh, I just don't know if I can give this up. But then he remembers the promise that God will always provide, and so he releases it. And remember in the Bible, these animal offerings are like 401ks with hair, right? I mean... This was currency in the scriptures, right? It's the same thing. We, 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 not many of us are, are trading animals at this, this point, but, but you know, it's, it's more about money. So what it reveals is, um, is what it reveals is this divided heart in Cain. And so the question for us as we think about what reveals our heart is our worship. What kind of worship 
pleases God for us. Is it perfect church attendance? I mean, let's hope not, right? <laughs> is, it, is it looking like your Sunday best, like your physical appearance? Is it giving exactly 10% of your gross income, not just your net? You know, is it, is it, I mean, what do we have to do to please God in worship? It's a question we have to answer. I mean, have you ever wondered about this in your own life? Have you wondered about it? Have you wondered if what you're presenting to God is enough? Now, I'm not saying that we're not saved by faith through grace. We certainly are. Think about this church. Cain and Abel heard the same promises of God, attended the same church. They were both priests, right? And, and what we see is one guy's heart is saved and regenerated and he's wholeheartedly following God and the other one's is not. And I, I just want to sit in this for a moment before I jump straight to God's grace because I don't think we let that hit us the way that it should. I mean, listen to what Jesus says, Jesus says in Matthew 7. I mean, it helps us to answer the question, is Cain's heart alive in me today? Matthew 7 says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will, will say to me, Lord, didn't I offer you a grain offering? It doesn't say that, but you could work with me here. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? Did we not do a lot of ministry, a lot of stuff that had Jesus' name on it? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a terrifying verse, isn't it? Don't just jump over this. Let this hit you this morning in such a way that, that God might show you what he really desires from your heart and from your life. These are the people who look from the outside. They look the part. These are the canes of our world. And they are in the church and participating in the church, but their hearts are divided. What, the way in which we live our lives in worship reveals the God that we serve. One of the things that this pandemic, and I just want to step aside and say this, one of the things that this pandemic is doing to the visible church in our country is I think cleansing and revealing what it is, to be honest with you, um, to, to kind of show who maybe who really is pursuing God wholeheartedly and who's not. And I'm not talking about people who are high risk, who are at home watching online right now. I'm not talking about that at all. Barna came out with some research that said that, that um, out of everybody that they had surveyed, and it was a wide spectrum of people, that 32% of the people that were going to church or a part of churches, active in churches before the pandemic are not only not going in person, like they're not going to church online or anywhere. Let that sit. One third of the church doesn't plan on coming back. Is that heavy to anyone else? One third, that is millions and millions of people. That's one of the things that has happened in 2020. And I, I don't, I mean, I, it could just be a honest, more honest evaluation of what the church is in America today. That's not the only thing that's happening this year. I'm, we're also seeing throughout the world, God awakening his people, bringing prodigals home. People in my own family have come to faith in 2020, right? Because people get to the end of themselves and see that Jesus is actually better than anything in the world. Amen? That's what, that's what they see. And so, you know, Genesis 4 is first and foremost about worship. And the thing that we have to consider to live lives of wholehearted worship is this. 
If we come to worship on Sunday, what is it that we do on Monday? Let me ask it one more time. If we go to worship on Sunday, what is it that we do on Monday? It's kind of a trick question, right? We worship. You worship on Monday, whether you know it or not. The question is, what is it that you worship? And I think this begins, as we ask that question, it begins to show the division of what half-hearted worship looks like or divided worship in our lives. Because God's desire for us is that all of our lives would be fluid lives of pleasing worship to him. Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1, talks about really the key to this. Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and accepting to God. And what he, what he means by this is to present all that you are, not just what you have or what you do, but all that you are, which is your spiritual worship. That is what worship is. God is far more concerned with what is in your heart than what your life looks like. Because the, 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 the difference in, in, in uh, the... Um, the Lord really addressed David with this when he says, hey, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Do you remember that in 2 Samuel? This is exactly what God's after in his church today. So we come back to this, this idea of, of Cain and Abel here. Cain made a sacrifice trying to secure God's favor through what he did. Look at what I've given. But his heart wasn't in it. It was kind of a workspace tokenism. And the reason that I can say that is because what happened when God didn't approve of what he offered? What came out of his life? Anger. And we said earlier that what is anger? It's the other side of love when something that you love is threatened. Well, what was threatened? Cain's love of himself. That's what was threatened. Cain tried to work himself to God by giving an offering, and God read straight through it the same way that he does with us. He read his mail there. And, and so, you know, the, the, Cain's response to the Lord, uh, Lord's displeasure reveals that he doesn't understand and believe in a salvation that could come by grace through a substitute, an intermediary, something else. Uh, he's disappointed and resents his brother because he thought he could secure God's favor through his own efforts. But, but everyone who's going to worship with their whole heart has to come to this place where they, where they realize that they, that, that they desperately need God's grace, something that they cannot attain on their own. Like, because it's only when you get desperate that you pray and you totally lean on God. And, and, and this is where we see Cain going with the offering that he gives him. Because, I'm sorry, Abel, because Abel had abandoned this self-salvation project that you and I are tempted to enter into. If Cain's uh, Cain's offering didn't please God because it didn't come from that heart of desperation, do you remember that that day in the Bible where King David basically broke all ten commandments in a couple days? You remember that one, a real bad day, right? When when he had an affair with Bathsheba and then killed her husband Uriah and then covered it up with a bunch of lies and and then uh, I think it was uh, Nathan that approached him and said, "Hey," he told the story and he says, "Hey, David, by the way, you are the man." And David just broke. Well, Psalm chapter 51 came out of this. Psalm 51 is a, is, a, is, a, um, is a song of repentance from one of the most broken men ever walked the face of the earth who happened to please the Lord with his broken heart. And here's what Psalm 51 tells us about the nature of worship and repentance. Here's what it says. Open, Lord, uh, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. In other words, you won't 
delight in just kind of lip sync service, lip sync offering. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering because here's what the sacrifices of God are. Here's what he's really after. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. A broken heart. What's a broken heart? What's a broken and contrite spirit? It's all of the Beatitudes put together, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, you know. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the weak in this world because they see that the only strength that they're ever going to have is in Christ Jesus. This is what he's talking about. This is what leads to a life of wholehearted worship. And so my question to you this morning is, is your heart broken over your sin? Is it broken over the predicament that you've gotten yourself into? And where do you turn when your heart is broken? How do you relate to God rightly again? What does it look like for you? Because Jesus wants all of your heart. He wants all of your worship. And this is going to show up in how you live your life, whether you want it to or not. You can hide from everybody on the face of the planet, but you can't hide from God. So the question is, when you're found out in your sin that has alienated you from God, is it going to be too late or are you going to repent this side of God coming in his judgment. So it doesn't just start in the heart. It also goes to the relationships. Let's look at the second part of this chapter here. Sin divides our hearts and it divides our relationships. Let's read, let's read kind of what, what follows here. Verse seven in chapter four, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's talking to Cain. And if you do not do well, listen to this chilling metaphor about the nature of sin. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. It's not best for you. But you must rule over it, Cain. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, happens pretty quick, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Whew. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Instead, you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today, away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken out on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, let's, let's start with what God says to the hidden places of Cain's heart. He uses this metaphor. He says that sin is crouching at the door. It, it, it's hidden, Cain. Cain, it is, it is sitting back in the darkness, and even though it promises you life, it can never give it to you. Sin is hiding in the shadows. It's not moving a whisker. It's, it's setting up the chess pieces in such a way where you are going to fall like dominoes when the enemy tears you limb from limb. That's exactly what's going to happen, Cain. 
And that, that rebuke to Cain falls on deaf ears, doesn't it? Have you ever had someone confront you in your sin before? It is the most terrifying and awkward thing in the world. You know what the only worst thing is? Someone not doing it, right? God, in his love, confronts Cain. Before he commits the act, he says, your heart's going that way, brother. It's, it's going that way. If you don't repent, it's going to happen. And Cain blows through it. He blows through the, just the heart probing that God does. Do you know what happens when you do that over and over and over again? Your heart gets hard and you become less likely to respond to the promptings of the spirit the more that you rebel and rebel and rebel against God. And this is what's so terrifying for believers all over the world who don't have a, a pretty frequent um, encounter with confession and repentance is that we are forced to do something by ourselves with our sin. And God never called you to do that. God never called you to handle your sin on your own. And so as we see this play out, um, we see Cain and Abel have an exchange. I don't know what happened in that one line there, but something happened and Cain rose up against his brother and took his life. And then in the next verse, we see something very familiar with Genesis 3. The Lord begins to interrogate Cain the same way that he did Adam and Eve. Do you remember what God asked Adam right after they sinned? Where are you? What does he say to Cain? What does he say to him? Where is your brother? It's the same question. It's like, okay, did, did God not know? Were they hiding? You couldn't see behind the trees? No, he's the God of the trees, too. He's the God of the ground where Abel's blood is poured. He's after Cain's heart is why he asks the question. He's after a confession. He's after honesty about sin. What's he get? Abel answers, I don't know, God. Am I my brother's keeper? Wow. God asks, what have you done? Let's get straight to the... The point here, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And what does God do? He issues the punishment against Cain. Not only is the ground going to be cursed and impossible for you to yield its strength and to produce uh, like you should be able to from your family, you're actually going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth. You're going to be on the run. Because you're on the run from me right now, you're going to be on the run your entire life. And Cain responds. Listen to how he responds. Because th this is the problem this is the problem here. This is how we respond too. My punishment is greater than I can bear. And so he goes on to this litany of things of, of how it's greater than he can bear. But remember what we just said, you were never made to handle your sin on your own. So our greatest fear that keeps us from confessing our sin and repenting to other people is that we don't want to see what's behind the curtain of our hearts. We don't want to feel the depth of it because we know we can't handle it on our own. Church, you were never made to handle and manage your sin on your own. What happens when we confess our sin is we make a beeline to Jesus Christ who has abundant provision for our sin. This is the whole thing that God has been trying to do, the model he's set forth from the beginning of time as a way for us to handle our sin, to be overwhelmed with the prospect of how bad our sin is that would lead us to the point of desperation where we might trust God's provision in Jesus for us. And so Cain goes on from here, and he lives his life, and he leads a whole, an entire host of people away from the Lord, and he builds an entire city that's founded on these principles 
of running from your sin. And we, we see this play out over and over, and it eventually reaches you know, Babel, and it, it goes on from there. And so this is really a depressing sermon so far, isn't it? Well, I have some good news for you. Only Jesus can truly be his brother's keeper. Um, I want to just park on Cain's response because I think it is often our response when we think about who's responsible for sin. Um, <clears throat> am I my brother's keeper? You see, we live in this world and this world lives in us. This abdication of responsibility for sin. And this is the world's response to our greatest need. I don't know, I didn't do it. It's not my problem. I don't care. That's what this state that that's that's what the this statement is is meaning. Let that sit with you. At the end of time, when Jesus looks at us in the eyes and says, I know everything you've done and thought, I know your entire story. We're not just gonna be able to sit back and say, you know, he made me do it. You know, am I my brother's keeper? No, no, no. We're not going to be able to do that because we're going to be confronted with the nature of our sin. Now, the question is, will we respond to the Lord's prompting as he pursues our hearts today? Or will we wait to the end of time and try to avoid it our entire lives and build lives that cover up our, our sins with fig leaves? Fig leaves that have brick and mortar and big bank accounts and lots of relationships. All of them are fig leaves. But let me tell you what Jesus did to people that try to cover themselves. Let me tell you what he did for us. Hebrews chapter 2. Start with verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. In other words, God is going to have to suffer because sinners are suffering. And, and God is the same one that saves us, but he also carries us to completion. That's what he means when he talks about sanctification. And then there's this aside that, that hits at the deepest part of Jesus's identification with you and with me. Because I think sometimes we relate to Jesus kind of like a redheaded stepchild. We're like, yeah. He doesn't really want me, but I, I need him, and, and so he'll, he'll tolerate me. No, no, no. That is not how God thinks about you at all. This verse says this, and that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So we have Cain, ashamed to be his brother's keeper. Jesus says, I've never been ashamed of them. Friends, this world would look at you in your most desperate place, and say, am I my brother's keeper? And it will crush you. For some of you, it already has crushed you. But Jesus has never, ever, ever looked at you and said, am I my brother's keeper? He's never said that. So in your slide of sin into the darkest places of your life, Jesus has not looked upon your soul with contempt, but rather as a kind and benevolent brother, a family member who's come to do everything to secure you eternally in the Father's love. He has always said, I am my brother's keeper. I'm going to take responsibility for what they've gotten themselves into. Verse 14 goes on to say, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus had to be made like us 
in every way so that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. So those two sons that we see playing out, those two seeds that we see playing out in Genesis 3, Jesus has come to handle the devil. And it only happens when we trust him as our keeper, the keeper of our souls. The only way that Jesus will ever deny his provision for our sin is if we deny his lordship in our lives. This is why wholehearted worship is so key. Jesus has stepped into time and place and he said, yes, his sin is my sin. I am my brother's keeper. In a world where no one wants to take responsibility, Jesus says, I am the man. Think about what what Jesus has done. Jesus came to save the canes of the world. He came to offer abundant life for us. He's taken the curse of Cain that's fallen upon half-hearted worshipers of God and has become cursed. He's become a homeless wanderer on this earth, tattooed with scars and pierced with nails to save his brothers and sisters. Amen? That's exactly what he's done. And because he's done this, we don't just, we don't just receive it and kind of get on with our half-hearted worship. No, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to move forward as a church together in being our brothers and sisters keeper. Listen to what Galatians chapter six says. Paul writes to his brothers and sisters. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in in a transgression, they're caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see what God does is he gives us the power and the call to step into each other's messes and not just say, well, that's too bad for you. But he says that we can step into the middle of it with hope because we are our brother's keeper because our older brother Jesus has formed our heart to care deeply for one another. And so my encouragement to you today would be to receive the elderly brother keeping of Jesus Christ so that you can help keep one another's souls as God's church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that, um, that in a world that abdicates responsibility for sin, that you've given us one that never for one day has done that. So Father, as we, as we face the heart of Cain in each and every one of us, there's, there's far more, there's far much more of his characteristics than we'd ever care to admit. And the beauty is, is that you know every single thing about us. And so, Lord, would you help us? Help us to be honest. Honest about our our sin, but honest about how abundant Jesus' grace is. Lord, may we not be content to offer half-hearted lives of worship to you hoping that we'll just skate by because we know that whenever you come into our hearts and our lives, that you, you become all to us. And Lord, we just want more of you in our hearts uh, and in our lives this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.